Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, we have a really special blend. Um, Our guest is both an author and a retired New York City Police Department detective. So uh, I have a lot of questions that I want to ask him, and I don't want to waste too much of our precious time. But his name is Vic Ferrari, and uh, he does write fiction novels about a detective, but he's also in real life a survivor of an Irish father and Italian mother. He loves cold beer and insists on you removing your shoes when entering his home. And when he's not writing, he's picking up after his neurotic Irish wolfhound. Always looking to save a buck, Vic splits his time between Branson, Missouri, and Papua New Guinea. And so actually, that's my first question for you today, Vic, is where are you? Florida. (laughs) Awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on Coffin Talk. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, And our kind of requisite question that we always start the show off with is we just ask guests to to let us know uh, how old they are, where they grew up, and what generation, if any, they think they belong to. I'm 55 years old. I'm a Bronx kid. I grew up in New York City area. I lived there for 40-something years until I retired after a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. Then I moved down to sunny Florida where I got into writing books about my former career. Um, I think I'm the latter part or the beginning part of Generation X. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and I'm the latter part or beginning part of millennials, so that's why it's always interesting when I meet people. Uh, but really, we're both just two humans. So first of all, Thank you so much for your service. And actually, that is kind of my first question. What led you into law enforcement in the very beginning? Like, was it what was the appeal to you? Well, the funny thing is, I grew up again, I grew up in New York City in the 70s. And when I was a little boy, my mother used to take me to the movie theater and around the corner from the movie theater was a police station. So, you know, she's taking me to see Herbie the Love Bug Part (laughs) 3. And I, I couldn't get enough of the police cars. So I was like always running up to the police cars. I got my nose against the glass. I'm looking at the equipment and every little boy is drawn to that gun. I'm watching the cops walk around with the guns. I'm like, I want one of those. By 10, 11 years old, my friends and I used to go to the local post office and steal all the FBI wanted posters off the wall and go for manhunts. So you got these 10 year old kids walking around with, you know, some bank robber from Louisiana and we're in the local deli and there's some telephone repairman in there getting a sandwich. And I'm like, this could be the right here. So luckily for me, I didn't get my kicked um by 20 i took the police exam and by 21 i went into the police academy where i had a wonderful 20-year career with the new york city police department i worked in various units i worked in dui i worked in plain clothes 15 out of my 20 years i worked in narcotics i wasn't an undercover doing deep undercover stuff but i did purchase drugs a handful of times and my last 10 years i was a detective in the nypd's auto crime division so anything with stolen vehicles, chop shops, exporting stolen cars out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen vehicles for resale, mafia-controlled businesses that, you know, I was up to my neck in it. Wow. When I retired from the NYPD, I started writing a series of books about my former career. Awesome. Uh, I have a really quick, like, you've probably been asked this a hundred times. So I grew up in the 80s, and so I was a kid in the 90s in the Bay Area of California. So naturally, me and my friends were definitely trying to get our hands on marijuana a lot. And we always had this like stupid rumor that if you asked a seller if they were a cop, they had to say yes. I'm just curious. Can you once and for all settle for me and all my friends? Is that just a total BS rumor or is that true? No, that's total bullshit. And, 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 and the same goes if, you know, if you're a cop and you're looking to purchase narcotics or stolen property off of somebody, you're an undercover capacity and the person asks you, are you a cop? You know, 
of course, you, the cop's going to say no because your life could depend on it. You know what I mean? You're sitting in an apartment with three dudes and there's a gun on the table. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. I went through the police academy and, you know, in a couple of minutes, this door's going to come off the fucking hinges and you guys going to get bounced around the apartment. No, you, you, it, there's no truth to that whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just hilarious. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I was like the same. I was a kid. Uh, you know, I grew up like watching Beverly Hills Cop and, you know, all of us were infatuated with uh law enforcement and you know america has a pretty good like us versus them heroes and bad guys culture so i am curious like over all the years and stuff has any of your opinion of like not the politics of it but just the actual like need for law enforcement has it changed or is it just pretty much consistent since the beginning of uh, you know its inception in like the 1800s Oh, I, listen, you need law enforcement. It, 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 people that play by the rules of society, you know what I mean? People that get up every morning, they go to work, they come home, and they're in by 11 o'clock at night. They usually don't need the police unless they're the victim of a crime or they've got an unruly relative. It, you need law enforcement because there are those that don't play by the rules of society or you have elderly people that need the police for a variety of things. So... No, my, my, my opinion hasn't changed on that. And and what is, like, the difference between a boring call and the kind of call that scares the life out of you? Like, what like when you're going into work in that field, like, are some days you just like, oh, this is so boring, I wish something would happen, or are you always like, thank God nothing happened? Well, New York City is a three-ring circus. <laughs> I mean, even if you work in a slow precinct, going to jump off. I mean... No, I never was afraid in my 20-year career. Most cops aren't afraid. I mean, there are some, but the vast majority of cops know what they're getting themselves into. Most cops are afraid of getting in trouble as opposed to getting killed or seriously injured. You never knew what you're going to get. Like, I'll just tell you a quick story from my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus. It started off, and this is a true story. It's a Friday night, short-stay motel. My partner and I get called out there for calls for help. We go to the door of this motel, and you hear a woman's voice scream, be a man and put it in my ass. So my partner and I are outside the door and we're laughing our ass off. Now, I want, you know, my partner's like, let's get out of here. And I said, you know, I don't want to mess with anybody, but I would hate to leave. And there's somebody tied up and trapped in a gimp box from like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I says, let's see who the f's in here. So we're laughing outside the door. I take the nightstick, I bang on the door, and you hear a woman's voice saying, I heard you made too much noise. So we're like, police, open up. The door opens up, and there's this little old man. He's in his 80s, no shirt on. He's got a pair of boxer shorts on. His testicles are hanging past the, 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 his boxer shorts, right? And I go, you all right? He goes, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. I says, listen, I, 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 do you mind if we come in? I just want to take a look around. He's like, all right, I guess. We come into the in, into the motel room. Granny's laying in the bed with the with the comforter up to her nose. I walk into the bathroom. I just make sure no one else is in there with them. I says, "All right, you know, carry on." And as we're about to leave, my partner turns around and he goes, "Did you put it in her ass?" And the old lady turned around and said, "Would you like to know?" So I mean, you never knew. Like you know, I just thought it was going to be a bunch of kids that rented a room or something. You got two old people in their eighties screwing in there, and you know they were into some wild. <laughs> That's great. First of all, I can just tell by the colorful, not language like as in the literal words you're using, but you're just a great writer, even orally. So thank you. I want to segue into the meat and potatoes of the podcast, which is how our opinions on death affect when we live our life. And then I want to kind of apply that to your experiences in law enforcement and everything. So straight off the bat, uh, what do you think happens to you? What will happen to you when you die? 
Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. You know, I never thought about death at all. And considering how much of it I saw when I was, you know, active in law enforcement. Oh, now I think about it all the time. I mean, I, I live my life different than I'm retired. I watch everything I eat. I exercise that much more. Um, I try to get in by 11 o'clock at night, like I said earlier. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's funny, uh, you know, when you die, you become someone else's problem. You know, your remains end and, and it's a whole process. And we can talk about that of what happens when someone dies in their house or dies in the street, you know, be it natural causes or unnatural causes. I hate to think about it, but, um, you know, I'll probably be cremated at some point. But do you think uh, like there's an afterlife or anything like that? Or do you think this is it? It's just lights out. Oh, I don't know. I really hope, you know, I'm Catholic. I'm not a holy roller or anything. Um, I, I really hope that there is. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but I really do hope there is for my sake and everyone else. I mean, because this is why I wanted to ask you, of all people, with your experience, when you see the heinous, heinous other side of humanity, not only once or twice, but often, I'm assuming, it has to probably start to affect your your thoughts on like a moral order to the universe. So I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at with my next question is, do you believe in a moral order to this universe? Yeah, I, I think there is something to that. I, I think, you know, like you were saying, if there is an afterlife, I, I definitely think if you live your life a certain way, you'll probably be judged, you know, more fairly than if you were total, you know, scumbag <laughs> your entire life people over. Um, yeah, I, I do think there was a moral order. Do you think the actual punitive systems out there, ranging from prison to fines, you know, all of the, the ranges that are out there, uh, do you think it's it's working, essentially? No, I don't. Um, you, you need jails, you need prisons, I get that. But the problem is, once they go, once they go, we call it upstate in New York, because that's where the prison systems are. When, when, when guys and women go upstate, they don't get helped. You know what I mean? You, you're taking the baddest of the bad and you're all lumping them in one place. So you're going to, you know, you got people up there that even if they are criminals, they're going to get victimized. You know, the strong survive in prison, the weak get taken, you know, they get taken advantage of. And nobody's really, you get, if you really want to, you can learn to be a better criminal. You know, the certain prison systems offer different courses and stuff where you could learn to be an electrician or a bricklayer or, you know, the trades. But, the reality is the, they just warehouse people and there's got to be a different, a better way. I've watched a couple of documentaries like in European prisons and they seem to be better behaved in there. You know, I, and you know, you want them to be rehabilitated because most of them at some point are going to get out. You know what I mean? If you think they were bad before they went away, you know, someone's been upstate for 10, 15 years and victimized. They're going to be worse when they get out. Yeah. And that's kind of the feeling I've been getting lately. I mean, I'm 41 years old, so I'm just a little younger than you. But it's not like, you know, I don't think we live in a dystopia. But like I've lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a really bad neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, in Oakland, California. And, and I just feel like not only is there not a consensus on crime, but especially on like, both sides of it, what causes it and what rehabilitates this. You know, I mean, of course, you're familiar with like strain theory and these ideas of like, well, when you're so poor, you just kind of have to break the law. So I am curious because you're intelligent 
and you're insightful and you're, you're beyond the job now. Like you don't have to worry about your, your commentary on it. So do you feel like there's just people out there who are inherently criminals? Like no matter what laws you did or didn't have, they would just choose a life against the, the common status quo? Well, the, the vast majority of people that are in jail, I'm talking federal system and state system, is, is because of drugs. Okay, so they're stealing to get drugs or they were doing drugs early in life. They didn't get an education. And then they went into the system early and, and they basically got ruined and they're just going to keep reoffending. Um, do people steal, poor people steal out of necessity? Yes and no. I, I, but I do think the vast majority of, of white people commit crimes is because of drugs one way or another. Now, there is, to what you were speaking of, there is a percentage of people that are just bad. You know, they've had, and I'm talking about people that came, you know, from privileged backgrounds. And there's just, there's something in them that they don't look at people or their possessions the way you and I would. And they look at everybody as a mark you know, someone that can be taken advantage of. And some of these people are quite violent. Wow. Yeah. I'm the opposite of frustrated. I'm kind of captivated because I, I feel like if I can make progress and get an understanding from you, then maybe the average person can too, not just through this interview, but in, in the world. I'm glad you brought up Europe too, because I don't really know crime in other countries very well. You know, I know it in the, the six to nine states I've spent a lot of time in here. And then just from what I read, and then I did live briefly on and off in parts of Asia. And so I saw how different their crime is. Um, since you do travel outside the country and you do come back here, is your general like radar for crime for people who are looking for marks? Is it kind of the same everywhere? Well, I spot things um, and I'll see things a lot of times before it jumps off. Um, if you work in law enforcement long enough and you really dedicate yourself to it, you, you're pretty much a body language expert and you will see things before they happen. I remember one time, um, I was in San Francisco with my girlfriend and we were in a, uh, you know, busy shopping area and we're coming out of, we're coming out of like a CVS or something. It was, it was a drugstore. And instantly I smelled angel dust. I could smell it burning. And I told her, let's get the fuck out of here. And she goes, what? I said, you smell that? She goes, yeah, I go, that's angel dust. Someone's going to go nuts in, in like eight seconds. Within seconds, you heard this blood curdly scream. And, and one woman took a beer bottle and cracked it over another woman's head. And my girl was like, how did you? She goes, you didn't even see those people. I said, but I could smell it. You know, people that smoke angel dust don't sit down and play chess. You know what I mean? They're going to take their clothes off and run around because they think they're on fire or they're going to run into traffic and start a fire. So, you know, it's like I'll spot things. Another time I was with my uh, my friend and he had two young sons and we were waiting for a sister to come out of a movie theater. And we we're in front of a radio shack. And I watch these two, you know, they look like heroin addicts. They go into one store. One comes out with a bag and he's pulling stuff out and he's showing his friend. And I says, they're shoplifting. And he goes, how do you know? I says, because now the next one's going to do the stealing and then the other one's going to be the lookout. And we watch them. Uh... You know, so it's like, I will spot something, you know what I mean, before it happens. Or someone just hanging out at a place doesn't look right. You know what I mean? They're nervous. Something's, they just give off a vibe. Yeah. 
And I would just like to say for the benefit of my audience, um, I'm always talking a fair amount about San Francisco and the Bay Area, and it's mostly negative. I would just like to say that Angel Dust story is part of the reason why. Oh, well, it, well I worked in narcotics in the 90s, right? During, during the height of the crack epidemic, we used to call it sets, like a movie set. So that means you go to a location, you send out your undercovers, you're parked a couple of blocks away, they step out of the vehicle, they go to a location, they have what's called a tack plan. So we know in advance what they're selling on each corner. You don't want to send your undercover for heroin where they're selling crack because he might get hit with a baseball bat. And like corners like 110 and Lex, we would roll up after the undercover made a buy. And there was so many people. It could have been 30, 40 people selling drugs out there. It was like the rodeo. Yeah. And I imagine it's it's got to be pretty frustrating on like every side because, you know, I think about this a lot. Like there's prescription drugs that are you know, you can go to the right doctor and you can get them and you start to abuse them. But then if you run out or can't get the refill, then suddenly you're like a drug criminal. So I always ask anyone, I mean, law enforcement, uh, it's not a binary question. Like, would we be better off if all drugs were legal? I think that's a silly, stupid question. But uh, do you think that we're not like looking at addiction correctly and that maybe there's something we could be doing earlier with like especially children? Absolutely. And, and, and I'm glad you brought up pills. Like when I first came down to Florida, like pills really wasn't a thing in New York City. When I moved down to Florida, that was the height of all the pill mills down here. We had retired doctors that would get lured out of retirement to work in a pain management clinic. And basically you got these people that put up the money and then they've got a doctor in their pocket that just writes scripts. Right. And you had people coming from out of state and all this. And I knew nothing about pills. You know what I mean? But, and it got so out of hand. But, I mean, the, the pills that they prescribe nowadays, I mean, they were designed for, you know, stage four cancer patients in hospice. You, they shouldn't be giving these things to someone that had a, a root canal. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because I'm not I, – I never really – a couple of times once I took uh, – when I was a kid, I got prescribed uh, cough syrup with codeine. And it knocked out my eyesight for two days. And I said, even as a young man, I said, oh, this, I'm not going near these opiates for anything. And I come down to Florida and I had a couple of sports injuries. And the doctor's like, yeah, yeah, here's a script for Oxycontin. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'll take aspirin. You know what I mean? Like, I'll sit in the hot tub and take aspirin. I'm not fucking around with these pills because, like you said, it, it, what it does to people, the next thing you know, their script is up and now they, you know, they're stealing to get pills. Yeah, it's really sad. It's, and it's just weird. And I have, you know, because I've seen friends lose a lot to the addiction with alcohol, which is, of course, legal. And then I've seen friends lose uh, to the addiction of scripts that we're talking about. And then also the, the regular street drugs that we commonly talk about. So that's why I'm kind of frustrated. And then also, you know, it's I think it's a really weird mixed message to be having states right now where you're still going to get arrested for having possession of marijuana. And then the next state over, there's like a hotel advertising come do pot here. And like, you know, so I just think these times are crazy. It must be crazy for you to see all that. Is it? Yeah. It's like the wild West. Like some States have, you know, some States it's medical, some States it's medical and recreational. Some States is like a dry County. You, you know what I mean? So it's, um, but I mean, I mean, it, different states have different rules. You know what I mean? I, I really don't want to, you know, not yeah. Colorado. I don't live there. I mean, if I live there and I saw all this going on, I might get upset. But I mean, you know, that's what the people that move there are voting for. So have at it. Yeah. And I am actually a fan of that. I do like the whole state rights thing and everything. And, and it is interesting to me. 
Um, kind of moving back to the philosophy side with the law enforcement, when you decided to switch and start writing novels, was there any hope on your side that maybe through the, the art medium of writing and stuff that people might pick up on some of these ideas and like what we're talking about? Or is it just pure fantasy fun and, and entertainment for you? Well, I got into writing because after I retired from law enforcement, I was bored out of my mind. And um, at, at, at the bequest of friends and family, like you got all these wild, crazy stories from your NYPD career. You should start writing this stuff down. And I was apprehensive about it because I, I didn't, you know, I mean, they are tell all books pretty much. I changed the dates, locations, times, ranks. I changed people's names. But I mean, these things happened. I might embellish on some of the stories, but I mean, the root of the, the root of the story is real. Yeah, I did. I wanted to put a spin on law enforcement that there's a lot of funny things that go on. I mean, most people, you stop the average cop, you're going to get the robotic, stoic, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, because they don't know you. You know what I mean? After a while, you spend time with a cop, you realize this guy's pretty interesting or she's pretty funny. And the shit that goes on in the locker room behind the scenes, I mean, people wouldn't believe. So that's why I got into writing these books to kind of you know, kind of soften the image of law enforcement. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, and actually, I was going to kind of ask you about the whole like fraternity code and stuff like that, because I think it's both respectable, but also kind of scary. You know, I, I know there's a, um, what's it called? Eternal affairs? Yeah, eternal affairs. So, I mean, I know that like, even within the fraternity, there's like this, you know, are you one of them? Like, what am I doing? Because you even said like worried about making mistakes and stuff. So did that climate change at all? Or was it like always consistently like, nah, I'm a good cop. I know my friends are. I don't care. I just keep my head down and do my job. Well, if there's one thing, the New York City police one gets a lot of things wrong. They really do. But the one thing they get right is, I mean, the day you get hired, they tell you you're going to be fired. <laughs> so in the police academy, they make no bones about you cross the line with this, you, you're stealing, you're, you know, you're robbing people, you're beating people up, you're going to lose your job. And they have, they have cops that have done jail time for a variety of things, come in as guest speakers and talk to us in the police academy. Oh, wow. They bring in special prosecutors that are tasked with, with prosecuting police corruption, giving these fear, you know, sermons, you know, I mean, of, of cops going to jail. So, Make no mistake about it. They put it out there. Now, do people f up? Absolutely. The problem I had with internal affairs is they nitpick. You know what I mean? It's like they would always miss the big thing, and then and then you get banged for not wearing your seatbelt or you left 15 minutes early. Um, they weren't really well-liked. Well, let's take a step back. The New York City Police Department at any given time is between 30 and 35,000 members. Wow. So we hire in bulk, right? So a small police academy class would be 250 cops. A large one could be as large as 2,500. So as well as they try to run you through psychologicals and, and background checks, are you going to get bad apples? Absolutely. It's a, it's just the law of averages, and they usually get we they usually get weeded out pretty quickly because they'll do something stupid because they, they think now that they're a cop they got a license to steal. But then you get the dangerous ones from time to time where, you know, they're like we were speaking about earlier, someone that's just bad. You know what I mean? It's not like financial situations. No, this person is a dirtbag and they just they're waiting for the right partner or opportunity to pull something off. Wow. Vic, you're you're a fascinating man. And it's just been just a whirlwind of fun for me. Um, I have one last really stupid kind of corny question to ask you, and then I'm going to give you the floor. My basic run-in with law enforcement is when I occasionally speed in my car and I get pulled over. I'm curious, is there like a magic phrase or a look or a glance or anything that you can give my audience that they should know of the next time they're talking to law enforcement? Yeah. 
All right. So when you get pulled over, right? I'm retired now. I lost all my superpowers. <laughs> so like when I was a cop in New York, if I got pulled over in the five boroughs or even the other counties, as long as I was nice, I wasn't getting a ticket. And I know a lot of your listeners are going to, well, that's not fair. Well, here's the thing. If, you, if your sister's a flight attendant and your mother works for the New York Yankees, chances are you're never going to pay to a Yankee game and you're going to fly for free, <laughs> right? So that's one of the perks of being a cop. When I retired and moved down to Florida, I don't have my superpowers anymore. So now I wear my seatbelt. Now I drive the speed limit. So here's the deal. Always have your license, registration, insurance in one place in the car so you can just take it, bam, and hand it to them. The longer you're fumbling around the car, the, the more you're going to frustrate him. You know, you, you want to make yourself human with the cop, right? Because especially like the traffic guys, they don't tend to have a heart. So you want to make yourself human. You want them to notice you, to, to let down that, that veneer. Say, listen, and tell them the truth. Say, listen, I got to pick my kid up. I'm running late. My, my aunt's in the hospital. Blah, 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 blah. If you do that, it's going to significantly reduce. I'm not saying it's going to get you out of a ticket, but it will reduce. And if you fight the ticket in court, that cop might remember you, that you were nice to him and didn't give him a hard time. And he might come up with a case of amnesia. And that happens. I almost got a ticket down here one time. And the way I got out of it was I told the cop, I said, you're going to write me? And he goes, yeah. And I said, you know, the thing is, if, if I saw you get kicked on the side of the road, I'd be one of the few people that would pull up and kick that guy's and, and he just looked at me and he's like, all right, fine. And he handed it to me. He's like, I, was, I couldn't believe it. I went for it. You know what I mean? So there is a quota system. The city will deny it. And it's total uniform cops in New York have to write tickets. You could arrest Osama bin Laden and deliver 15 babies. If you didn't write 25 parking tickets, write 10 moving violations, three of which were red lights, which were the big ticket items, you were going to get a subpar evaluation no matter how many arrests and how many calls you answered. So I'm sorry for going on in a rant. You asked, I told. I don't think you should be sorry. I think this is why I was dying to talk to you, and I'm so glad you came on our show. Whatever message you want to get out there to our audience, um, it's up to you, Vic. If you go to Amazon and go into the book section and just type in my name, Vic, Ferrari. All my books are 10 bucks. I try to keep the price point low. All my books are behind the scenes. Look at the New York City Police Department. Interesting cops I work with, practical jokers, interesting criminals. So I had a really great career and I've written a series of books about it. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at VicFerrari50. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Vic. Um, and thank you again for all the work you did for all those years in not just New York City, but everywhere. And as always, you can head over to MikeyOp.com and sign up for free to the newsletter that comes with the podcast. And that'll help you stay in touch with all the exciting projects we're doing. So we will see you soon. Walking along when I hear this song and I'm walking alone.